0: All right, and we are in the life of faith, and we are in chapter twenty-four of Genesis. We've been going down through this chapter now for some weeks. You remember the outline of this chapter is this: it is the willing or the will of the Father, because remember Abraham sent his servant to go and to find a bride for Isaac. So you see the will of the Father, and then you saw the witness of the servant, and we looked at that for a Sunday. And then we looked last week at the willingness of the bride. See, the bride had to be willing to come back to be a bride, right? And then today, we're going to look at the last part of this chapter, and it is the welcome of the bridegroom, the welcome of the bridegroom. And we pick this up in Genesis chapter 24, and in verse 61, then Rebecca and her maids arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. And so the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Berlohoeroy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. And so she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Lord, we are so grateful again for your word, and even now as we open it, We want to just praise you, O Lord, and thank you that you give us the Bible in our own language even. And Lord, as we look at this text today, may Jesus be seen, and may we look forward to that great day we shall meet him. And we uh, we ask, Lord, in faith, and we look forward in faith, and Lord, stir our faith to trust you more today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been going through this uh, whole section on the life of Abraham and we now come to really the life of Isaac and uh, he's been at the forefront of this as the son right as the one who is going to meet the bride and we see as we've been going through the life of Abraham the various types that are represented in his life and also around him that really represent God's greater plan. And the Bible actually says that's what these things were about. They were shadows of a greater to come. They were some things that were foreshadowed through prophecy and also through the type or the shadow itself, not being the substance, but being something that declared the substance. And so when you come to the New Testament, you see that. And there are several examples of that as we've gone through. For instance, for Isaac who is the son that was focused on in this chapter. Um, his birth was a miraculous birth, wasn't it? It was miraculous because his mother was 90 years old when she gave birth to him, and his father was 100. And the Bible says they were well past that age of childbearing. And in the New Testament, it says that Sarah's womb was dead. There was no life that could come out of her at that point. To bring forth a child and yet miraculously God brought life out of something that appeared to be dead at that time and that's exactly what he does with the sinner isn't it? He brings life out of the dead sinner and we are born again into his family and you see the miraculous birth of Isaac well Jesus had a miraculous birth also didn't he? And that was a little different than this one in that his mother had never known a man and she was a virgin and she conceived and has a child. And we see how Isaac pictures for us the Lord Jesus, one being a shadow, one the actual substance. We see the willingness to obey his father and to give his life. Remember Genesis chapter 22, that story of Abraham taking Isaac and he goes on the Lord's instruction and he was to offer up his son, his only son, the one of the, who was the, the son of promise. He was to give his life there at Mount Moriah uh, as a sacrifice. In the New Testament, uh, Abraham's heart is revealed and he he believed that God would be able to raise Isaac back from the dead. And yet it didn't have to come to that, did it? God provided instead a ram, a a lamb, and he used that ram in the stead of Isaac and that, that ram was the sacrifice. And again, a picture because God would send his only son. And his son would go to Mount Calvary. And there being God's lamb. He would take upon death and sin. And this, everything that the world has ever done. That's evil. Every single evil thought you've ever had. Every sin you've ever committed. Every sin you will commit. All the sin that has happened ever since the Garden of Eden. Was placed upon Jesus at the cross. And he was our lamb. Our lamb. Which takes away the sin of the world. The Bible says. One was a shadow. The other an actual substance. Of what would take place. And the Bible is much like that. And of course you come to this section here. And and by the way. Coming out of Genesis chapter 22. Remember Abraham comes down off the mountain. And Isaac is not mentioned. In that point. Until you get to this point here. As far as. Uh, him being on the scene again now it wasn't because Isaac didn't come down off the mountain matter of fact in Genesis chapter 22 verse 5 Abraham before he even went up on the mountain he told the young men that were watching the uh, the donkeys there he says stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you and that's exactly what would take place but it's interesting that he's not mentioned until we see The bride coming to meet the bridegroom. By the way. Jesus. When he died on the cross. And he rose again. He appeared to his brethren. Uh, He appeared to uh, the disciples. And shortly thereafter. He ascended into heaven. And he promised. As he was going up. And before that he was coming again. Someday he's going to welcome his bride. And when he comes again. For the bride. And that type in Isaac and Rebecca is a shadow of a greater to come and that's what we're going to look at today as we look at the text and we dig in a little further because you know there's a great day coming when the bridegroom is going to welcome his bride and I believe the New Testament teaches that that's the church and that is specifically those who believe in this age all right Uh, The Old Testament does picture Israel as a bride. And it does picture, uh, metaphorically, in that sense, in in Isaac as well, and Rebecca, in that. But there was also a mystery that was yet revealed later, and Jesus talks about that. And it's also others who would be part of that group. And indeed, that would be the church. The church began, according to the scriptures, in Acts chapter 2, after the ascension of Christ... You have the Holy Spirit being given and you have on that day of Pentecost, uh, that that day of the feast of the Jews, uh, a day 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, you have 3,000 people getting saved. They believed and they are added to the church. And from there on in the New Testament, you see the church, church being made up of saved Jews and saved Gentiles and God's plan to the nations was revealed fully even though he talked about it several times in the Old Testament. And we see that pictured here in that someday, I believe in God's calendar of events, and I don't know the date nor the time of those things, and if you you ought to be leery of anybody that would come along and say they know those things, because Jesus told us that it is in an hour that you think not, that he is eventually coming back to this earth, preceding that event. In his prophetic plan, he comes to receive his bride. And we see that in scriptures like 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, and it was a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. Um, The church there, he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, and I have, for some reason, verse 1 there instead of verse 13. I don't know why, but let me just go back. Actually, I can probably find it further down. I don't know why. We'll, we'll move to this one. Because it's listed as 413, but it's 4 verse 1. We're going to go to 1 Thessalonians. There we go. And. All right. Stand by, folks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 13. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's interesting because There's coming a time and the apostle Paul believed it was imminent because he includes himself in this text when he says, we who are alive and remain. Paul believed that at any moment the bridegroom could come back, the Savior himself, and he could catch away his church. And you see that as it's pictured in the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca as well as she who is willing, comes, and there is the one who has been away. He's dwelling away. He's dwelling by a a, a well. It talks about that well. Uh, and here Isaac returns back, and he receives his bride. And in God's prophetic plan, that is what's going to happen. And by the way, it's interesting, in the location, according to Genesis chapter 24, it was a place called Beer Lechoiroi. That's the The name of the well in which the region in which Isaac was dwelling. He was no longer living in his father's household. He had moved south of that. And he was living at a place where there was a well. And it's interesting because if you want to look at Abraham's life. You'll find altars associated with Abraham. There's several instances where altars were built. Those are places of sacrifice. With Isaac there are several instances of location where wells were present. By the way, wells bring life, don't they? And wells are uh, a picture of the life that is found in the Lord, not just the sacrifice that the altars picture. And we find that this was a place where uh, Isaac... Uh, had come from and it was a place where the lord saw and actually in that text of genesis 16 verse 4 or 14 is the very first instance that well is mentioned in the context there it's for remember hagar hagar who did not conceive she was the handmaid of abraham and she conceives by abraham a son not the son of promise but a son that god would bless nonetheless And it was in a place where God saw, and that's why it was named that, that he sees all things. And by the way, he does see all things. Not one thing escapes him, and his plan will be fulfilled no matter what we do or what we don't do. His plan is fulfilled in that, and we see that here in the life of Abraham. Well, in verse 63 of Genesis 24, it talks about uh, Isaac... And the fact that he was meditating out in the field. It says, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked and there the camels were coming. Now here's the son as he's out there in his field. And he's watching and he sees this caravan of camels returning. And on one of those camels is his bride. I think of, imagine what his heart would have been like to have his heart jump at that point by the way it would be the first time he laid eyes on her we don't have any instance of that before this and they had just traveled approximately minimally about 900 miles some say maybe upwards of 1200 miles going from Mesopotamia to the promised land of Abraham and it would have been probably a two month journey if they just went 20 or 25 miles a day it would have taken a while to get there and so long journey and here you see the marriage is about to be uh, brought in place and consummated well i find it interesting as the holy spirit breathes out his word here and he says and isaac went out to meditate i often wonder what was on his mind what was he thinking about well no doubt his mind was on the expectation of receiving his bride by the way the lord has you And me on his mind today. All the time. He doesn't get us out of his mind. We do sometimes don't we. There are times where we might forget him. Or we might not think about him in the way we should. And yet you'll never find him doing the same. He thinks about you all the time. And he can't get you out of his mind. Well it was love at first sight. Because you find that. uh, The Bible later on this text. Says he loved her. Um. But it's interesting because the Bible has a lot to say about meditating. And I think it's good to meditate. One of the things that we've lost in this world of busyness and electronics and and bings and dings and everything else that comes in on the phone and everything else is we've lost the, the sense of stopping for a little bit. Maybe in the cool of the evening, standing out there in a field and just looking at God's creation or looking at the work of your hands, perhaps, or your father's property in that case, because that's what he was on. And, and, and as he's there, and he, he's thinking. And like I said, I don't know what was on his mind exactly. But as a man, there's a lot of things that go on our minds. And, and as women, you know that too. And it's good to stop and to meditate and to meditate on God. Because we've lost in many ways that I call the art of meditation. Because uh, I think in times past when we were a lot less connected technologically. We had time to sit and not be entertained. And not to be answering emails and texts all the time and those kind of things. But rather thinking about more important things for the day. Which is the Lord. In Psalm chapter 1, the very first psalm. Verse 2, it says, this is the the blessed man. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Maybe Isaac was meditating on the law of God. He was meditating on the the things that he had learned from a boy all the way up to being a man. That his father and his mother had taught. Maybe he was thinking, because his mother, Sarah, had died at this point. Maybe he was missing her. He was thinking about his blessed mother. How many of us have those times where we sit and we think about those who've gone on before us and where they are now and in the presence of God if, they're, if they were believers. And I'll tell you, we need to meditate. That's not an Old Testament principle only though either. It's a New Testament principle too. We're to think on godly things, on God and what he's like. and Meditate those, on those things. Romans chapter 13, Paul writes here, and do this, okay, and do this. And whenever you see that kind of thing, you better listen up. Knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Sometimes we need an alarm clock to, r- to wake us up out of sleep. Well, you know what? It's going to get harder and harder in this world around us to wake up from the darkness that envelops it. And my friends, we are 2,000 years beyond when Paul said it's high time to wake up. We need to wake up. We need to live for Christ today while it is still day. He says that. He says it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. and The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. As in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness. Nor in lewdness and lust. Not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh. To fulfill its lusts. Oh my friend. We, we are in a world of darkness, and they're doing exactly opposite of what the Lord, or what Paul commands us to do. They don't have the armor of light on. No, they put the, the armor of darkness on in their works. They don't walk properly. They walk uh, instead in these things. Revelry. That means just uncontrolled sort of an idea that life is a grand party. Now, life is can be party, and it can be pretty exciting and pretty nice, But life is also a time to be sober. Not in drunkenness. There's a difference between someone who has joy in their heart and is singing to the Lord and they're controlled by the Holy Spirit and a difference between someone who has joy in their heart and they're controlled by some kind of intoxicant. Their song is different, (laughs) for example. Walk in light not in lewdness and lust. Probably that could be the commentary today of the world in which we live and our entertainment and everything else that's coming at us all the time. It's a lot of lewdness and lust. And it sells. Billions of dollars spent this year, billions and billions worldwide on lewdness and lust. And in the end, it leaves you empty and wanting more and you can't get more. Eventually, it'll consume you. Not in strife, not in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so glad when the Lord says, come to me and walk in his light, he has us also clothed with himself, the radiance of him. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And you know, that's exactly what we're to do. It's interesting with uh, Rebecca in Genesis 24, when she sees the Savior or excuse me sees the bridegroom picture of the savior she immediately gets off the camel because in that day customarily when women met men that they weren't familiar with yet they would not be riding animals they would get down off them it wasn't proper for a woman to be riding an animal at that time uh, i don't know why that's what the, the commentaries say that that and it was a custom out of mesopotamia and it would have been a custom of that day and I think it's because they were to interact, and they were not to do so, sitting up on a camel or wherever else I guess, had to come down a picture of humility by the way. and then she veiled herself, she covered herself with a veil. that tradition is still in play in a wedding today, in most in in the West anyways, we have weddings where the bride will veil her face. And lift that after the vows have been exchanged. All of that. And it's a picture really of humility. And a picture of submission in a marriage. Where there's really, uh, it's not about the outward beauty, but the inward. And you know what? That man gets to see her as she really is when he's married to her. A picture exactly of what the Lord is like as well. My friends, we live in a dark world. And we need to walk in a proper way with the lord first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 1 and it says paul sylvanus and timothy to the church of thessalonians in god it's written to the church father and the lord jesus christ grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ we give thanks to god always for you all making mention of you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith labor of love patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father knowing beloved brethren your election by God for our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us as the Lord, having received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. And so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. I love that testimony of the Thessalonian church. They had been a group of believers there, a church that had taken some real hard hits. They had been heavily persecuted. You know, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul first went to Thessalonica, they assaulted the house that he was in, and he had to get away there, and he just barely got away from Thessalonica. And yet, a church started there. And it wasn't easy for those believers, but they became an example for everybody. They're an example to us. And by their faith, the word of the Lord went out from there into the world. And it is most likely they were part of the plan, even for the planting of this church, believe it or not. Thousand, uh, almost 2,000 years later, that the work of God is still going on because of faithful people who put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they took it seriously. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. You know what they were doing? They were waiting for the Son. As a church, they're waiting for the Son. That's Jesus. Whom He raised from the dead. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Wow. I love that. He delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, we go on a little further here. And we see here this meeting back in Genesis chapter 24. Also involved not only the bride's willingness and the servant. Remember the servant, his witness. But it also, it involved an accounting of the servant. Now the servant was indeed a servant of Abraham. Um, and also a servant of Isaac, because Isaac was the son. And he had to give account of the things he had done. And I think that's proper also. It says, and the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. And, and then he goes on and he lists some of those in, in later, but in this section, you know, previous to that, he we know the things that he had done, and we see that. And it's a reminder that. Someday, there will be a joyous wedding that will come. There's also a time of accounting also. For believers, we will give account not for judgment as such, but rather for reward. And the things that we did entirely in our own strength, in our flesh, things that were wrong even, those things are burned up with fire, yet not the believer. We're not burned up by fire. But the works are tried by fire, according to what the Bible says that's going to happen but there will be a great wedding that will take place prior to that as well we know that from by the way Romans chapter 14 says this but why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ the word for judgment seat there is the Greek word bima and it was a place where judges sat to hand out rewards for instance in the Olympics they did that they sat at the Bema seat and when an Olympian came across the line and they finished, you know, whatever place they finished and rewards were given out. Some would also finish, but they wouldn't receive those rewards because they didn't win in that sense. So he uses a very interesting word. Then he goes on, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. You know, we're to think about one another, but ultimately you'll give account of yourself. I'll give account for myself. I won't give account for everybody else, but myself and what God entrusted me with. And in that sense, as a pastor, I give account for others, but how uh, I ministered in that. But that's something I have to look and you do as well a great wedding that will take place where am I getting that from well from Revelation chapter 19 we have this scene this is prophetic this is future it says after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying hallelujah salvation and glory and honor and power belongs to the Lord our God for true and righteous are his judgments Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God. And sat, who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise Saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And my friends, we're reminded that there's a, a marriage someday in heaven. And that marriage, uh, is a, there's an invitation to be part of that as well. And that, just like Rebecca had to be invited, and she had to be willing um, eventually the marriage would take place. And, those, and that would be the example that we have in scripture. Well, we see that uh, throughout that. And by the way, we are to be pleasing to the Lord. We're to follow him and, and also know that the rewards uh, will be handed out someday. And we will see the faithfulness of God in that. And you, I don't turn to the passages, but in First Corinthians chapter 3 and also chapter 4, you have that accounting about being a steward of the grace of God and the mysteries of God. That means that we're to be someday accounted as faithful or not. I mentioned earlier that um, for Isaac, seeing Rebekah, it was the first time. He didn't know Rebekah, but he knew the servant, He knew his father, and he knew whoever would be coming back with that servant would be the bride for him. Because remember, God was in it, and we saw that. And obviously, it was, as I said earlier, love at first sight, because they got married that very night, and he loved her, the Bible says. That's the testimony of that. And I think, indeed, it truly was a marriage made in heaven. By the way, Christ loved you when he didn't even when you didn't look so great all right Um, we know that Rebecca was a pretty woman and that was a a great thing for Isaac as well but that's not why he married her the marriage was going to go on anyways uh, regardless of that but Romans chapter 5 reminds us that Christ came from for an ungodly world a world that didn't love him but he loved us first for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now think about that. He died for the ungodly. and, and that's true. And that's everybody, by the way. We were at camp this week, and we had three different teachers, uh, including Abby, I guess that's four we had that were teaching the children. And it was a great time. It was really, really good. We had Lydia, and then we had uh, Chris, Micho, and then Al. And all of them talked about the fact that we're sinners. And our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has estranged us from Him. And our sin is not pretty. You could say that again, right? Sin is not pretty. You look in our world and our world is filled with sin. And it's filled with all the evils of sin and all the ugliness of sin. And yet Christ still loved us in spite of that. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you glad he died for us? And it goes beyond that because he not only died for us, thus fulfilling The penalty of sin and the payment of sin, which was the wages of sin is death, right? He did that. But he also gave us his righteousness. He arrays us in white linen, according to what Revelation 19 says. He gives us a standing of righteousness, even in spite of our past and our sin. He takes our sin and he puts on his own righteousness. I love that. It's really pictured for us in that marriage relationship by the way, Paul also writes to the Ephesian church, and there he uses this same analogy uh, about a um, husband and wife relationship being the same kind of relationship that Christ has for His church. In Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-two, says, "Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord." There's an aspect of submission to the Lord and to the man. And that sounds a little old-fashioned, but it works. As people are, both the husband and wife are following the Lord, that really works. By the way, it doesn't let the men off the hook. I think the next verse is much harder. It says, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body, and it's coming up here. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. And then it says, husbands love your wives all right and it's husbands love your wives it's not like husband love your wives as in plural wives it's plural husbands love your wife all right your wife that the lord has given you love her men fall down on that a lot they don't love their wives or appreciate them the way they should what kind of love is it it's explained in the text it's an unconditional love It's a love like Isaac had for Rebecca. It was unconditional. Listen, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. See, this is where Paul goes from from the analogy of marriage now to the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Do you know marriage, a healthy marriage with believers both submitting to the Lord and in unison with one another serving him It is a beautiful picture of sanctification. Being set apart for one another. And properly done as a husband loves his wife and as a wife submits to her husband in the Lord and all that, it makes both of them better. It makes things brighter and it really is a testimony to others. And that's why I think God is big about marriage. (laughs) Very few institutions in scripture that go from cover to cover and marriage is one of them. And when you look at marriage, it pictures a relationship that God has with his people. That he might present her to himself, what? A glorious church. A glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle. Or any such thing. You know, sometimes here... We find out, well, you know, your spouse, maybe uh, the one you fell in love with, and you got married and all that. that no matter who they are, and I just say this, that there's things in the past, isn't there? There's baggage in the past, some greater, some lesser. There's things that come out. But you know, the marriage in heaven won't be like that. Our sin is remembered no more. And the things that, that plagued us here on this earth, And the failures and all those things are no longer. He presents her as spotless. Glorious. Listen. That she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he's saying, you're one flesh. And the one flesh union of a husband and wife is is actually a picture of the Union that Christ, spiritual union, Christ has with his church. Paul says that. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become. One flesh. Paul is quoting Old Testament scripture, and he's quoting there the reason a husband from Genesis, a man should leave his wife and they leave home, or not leave his wife, excuse me, that came out wrong. (laughs) A man should leave his home and be joined to his wife was because, in the context of Ephesians, it represents God's union. The two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. This mystery, what the word mystery means, it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It was previously unknown exactly. doesn't mean that it's mystery and that nobody knows it. It was talked about in the Old Testament, but the fulfillment of it is seen in the New Testament. And I, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Very specific here. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul, in his very practical teaching on the to the church at Ephesus, lays out this. And we see this pictured again back there in Genesis, where here's Rebecca, she's traveling long distance. It's been a while. It's not been easy. I don't know if you've ever ridden on a camel. I haven't, but I, I don't want to. Especially a 900-mile journey, sitting on a camel. And man, that would just be... You thought your seat was bad in the car? Imagine that. And then showing up and doing that... But it was worth it. And my friends, it'll be worth it when we see Jesus someday. All the heartache and the headache and the back aches and everything else aches that take place in this world, it'll be worth it when we see Jesus because he'll welcome us and we'll be with him forever. You're invited to a wedding. Are you willing? Are you going to respond? I hope so. I hope you have. If you haven't, today can be the day you respond. Let's pray. Lord, again, we are grateful for your, your word and for the picture here that is seen in the book of Genesis that is really a greater picture. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and for giving these things to us so that we might have hope. And we walk by faith, Lord, not by sight. Help us to be The one who is holy, even now, God, to present ourselves to our Savior someday. Oh, Lord, we pray that we might live for Jesus and not of ourselves. We ask this in his name. Amen.